Let's pray. Let's let's settle our hearts in and turn to the Lord for his continual direction. Father, we thank you for this time to assemble this evening, Lord, just to still have the Lord incredibly sacred privilege that it is to be able to gather together, Lord, like this freely. Lord, we acknowledge that there's a gift right now that we're enjoying that other brothers and sisters in Christ who love you just as much, Lord, tragically, maybe even more than we do, and they don't even understand, Lord, the blessed privilege it is that we have to assemble like this, Lord. And and, and we pray even now that you'd be gracious to them, Lord, amidst their persecution and the threats and the fears that, you, Lord, you'd help them to be faithful. Lord, we stand with them. We recognize that they're a part of the family of God with us for all of eternity. And we just pray in this hour, Lord, that you'd minister to them in their time of need, whatever their situation may be, that, Lord, we would even learn from them and that, Lord, our hearts would as well be stirred towards greater faithfulness, Lord, to a greater connection to the things that are eternal and less of what's temporal. And, Lord, we thank you for this time to open your word this evening. We just ask that as we continue now, that we can worship in spirit and truth even as we have prayed and even as we've sang that the study of your word would be a continuation of our worship as we let your Holy Spirit speak to us the truth of your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us now. You know what I and each one of us in this room need to be prepared to experience the ministry of your spirit. That's what we long for, Lord, as we sang. We long for that. Your Holy Spirit is welcome here, Lord. We ask that he would be our teacher and our interpreter and the instructor in the Word of God tonight. Prepare us accordingly. Bless your Word and speak to us now, Lord. We ask that, expecting you want to and will, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Okay, Numbers chapter 33. If you read ahead a little bit, you can see there's some technicality to these next couple of chapters in the sense that we have some more lists uh, and logs and kind of records which we get uh, a few different times in the book of Numbers, uh, particularly here in chapter 33, we basically get a a log of the journeys, uh, the different camping destinations of the children of Israel. Uh, basically recorded here for us. No doubt would have been a way for them to kind of jog their memories. Again, remember, they're right on the edge of the promised land, probably chronologically for them, not for us because of the pace that we go at, but for them, they're only about a month from getting into the promised land. In their time there, chronologically, they're on the eastern border of the Jordan River across from Jericho. Uh, And it's at this point now, as we wrap up these last few chapters of the book of Numbers, that God has them rehearse a few things to remember his work among them and his faithfulness to prepare their hearts to go into the land and as well gives them some instructions how to divide up the land, as we'll see in some of these remaining chapters. So chapter 33, verse 1, begins by telling us this. These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses, verse 2, it says, wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting points. 
point. So we take note here, verse 2, that at the command of the Lord, Moses apparently journaled and took record, if you would. He kept sort of a travel log of sorts of the different destinations, where they would start out from, where they would move to, where they would then camp and then get up and journey once again. And it says at the command of the Lord that God asked him, it says to keep a record of these things. Now, again, uh, what that was for, maybe that was for Moses, his own personal encouragement as he's shepherding the people and watching God perform his works and wonders. You know, I think there is something really helpful and wonderful if you're someone who journeys maybe my wife's very good at uh, journaling she's always been way more faithful in that that I have I kind of go off and on in seasons with that but whether you're somebody who journals your prayers or maybe you just journal things in regards to kind of getting thoughts out on paper and recording what God's doing in your life now and then you can kind of look back on that and sometimes that can be a, a real encouragement because it's kind of a rehearsal then of the testimony of how God worked and the things that he did in your life and it seems that God gave Moses this instruction. Maybe it was for his own personal encouragement as well as it seems it was also on a corporate level something that would be helpful to the people as they would rehearse those things. And, and here uh, we are actually informed that God instructed Moses to do this. He commanded him to do it and to record and write down the different places where they stopped as they journeyed around through the wilderness in that 40-year period, particularly from their starting points. Uh, look, beginning in verse 3, it begins to give us the early stages of those journeys, departing now from Egypt. It says, they departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the month, on the day after the Passover, referring all the way back now to the book of Exodus, which we studied a long time ago, the deliverance out of Egypt, it says that day after the Passover, when the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians, for the Egyptians, excuse me, were, notice, burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them, and also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgment. So we get a little interesting insight here. Verse 4, the Holy Spirit gives to us in regards to that whole process of God's deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And of course, you remember the different plagues that God brought upon them, the turning the Nile to blood and bringing the plagues of the frogs and bringing the plagues, uh, the plagues, the plagues when the lice uh, filled the land. And here we see that even as God was executing, notice the terminology there, executing judgments, that even as God was executing his judgments and these miraculous plagues came upon the people of Egypt because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart and his stubbornness and from their mistreatment of God's people, that even those very plagues, notice they weren't just random miracles. They weren't just arbitrary ways that God sort of in a you know, random act just threw down some heavy plague upon the people to make their lives miserable. But we see that God was very pointed and specific in how he was even bringing those specific plagues. We're told there in verse 4 that the Lord was executing judgment on their gods. Again, the, the Egyptians were people who were, were polytheistic. They worshipped all types of gods, depending upon what the need was. They worshipped the Nile River, and therefore God turned the Nile River to blood. It was, in a way, God saying, and then remember, after every plague, remember those famous words, God will always say, that Pharaoh may know 
that I am the Lord. They worship the frogs. I think, believe, the, the god of that name was Hecht, H-E-C-T-H, if I remember. And again, what did God do? God said, you worship the frogs. So God brought tons and tons of frogs upon them that Pharaoh may know that not this God, but I am the Lord. They worship the ground. And ultimately, even as it records here in the last plague, remember the killing of the firstborn as God told them to apply the blood on the doorposts and on the lintels of their home so that the angel of death as it went through the camp and killed all the firstborn, that the wrath of God would pass over them because of the blood of an innocent substitute, a picture, of course, of the cross and the death of Jesus Christ and God's wrath passing over them. But even as the very firstborn were dying among them as that last plague took place, the severest of all the plagues, part of that, again, was not just God randomly killing a bunch of innocent people. We need to remember historically and, and look at your history, Pharaoh was worshipped as a god and any offspring of Pharaoh was worshipped as deity and as a god as well. So as Pharaoh's firstborn is being put to death, in a sense, even in that, God's not just arbitrarily, randomly taking human life. God again is demonstrating that Pharaoh may know he is not a god and his offspring are not deities. I am the Lord. And in all those things, we look at that and we think people would want to look at that and say, well, God is harsh and God seems somewhat stern. And when the reality is, is, no, listen, even when God is seemingly somewhat harsh circumstantially, that in and of itself is still a great demonstration of his love because his purpose behind it is revelation. And sometimes hard hearts and hard heads need hard times to recognize their need of God. And God loves us enough that he is willing to do whatever it takes to reveal himself to us. And it takes different things for different human beings because God cares more about the soul. God cares more about the eternal condition of a human being than he does about their own temporal comfort or what is momentary things. God cares about that. So even in these very things, we see it was an act of God's revelation. He was actually judging their gods as those plagues came about to seek to reveal himself to the people of Egypt and to Pharaoh that he was the one true God desiring their submission, of course, though they did not respond to it. So this was the way God delivered them out of Egypt. Verse 5 says, Then the children of Israel moved from Ramses there in Egypt, camped at Sukkoth, and departed from Sukkoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness, and moved from Etham and turned back to Pihiroth, which is east of Baal-Zaphon, and camped near Migdal. In verse 8, Then they departed from Hiroth and passed through the midst of the sea. That's a reference to the parting of the Red Sea. We remember that great miracle that God did as God parted the Red Sea as they were there on the border and the, the Egyptians were breathing down their necks. There was no place to turn to the right or to the left. There was a huge sea in front of them and there was absolutely no way. And what did God do? When there was no way, God made a way. And when there was a path that had never been taken before, God made a way where there had never been a way before. God parted the waters miraculously. And not only that, it says they went through on dry ground. 
Again, if you go down to the ocean and you go just a few feet out into the water, you realize you know, that, that, that ground underneath the water is mucky and muddy and, and, and they had to travel across that with animals and, and multitudes of people and God miraculously not only parted the water, but he made the ground dry and stable so they could quickly get across it. So this incredible miracle takes place even in the midst of when it looked like all was done and all was not possible even in that hour, even when all is lost, God still has a way of bringing about something. You know, that's a great reminder and encouragement because sometimes we all find ourselves kind of facing our own Red Sea experience and we just go, Lord, it's just, it's just not possible here. I mean, that way doesn't work and that way doesn't work and there's pressure back here and there's a complete roadblock in front of me. There is no way to turn. But see, there is always still a way to turn because Moses looked up. And a lot of times we look to the right and to the left and to the front and the back and we feel boxed in and it seems impossible. But the reality is, is we can always still look up. And the up look is what changes then our outlook because then God says, you know what, I can make a way still where there is no way. And, and God can part and create an opportunity and open a door and deliver us through something in a way that we never thought possible. And you know, we should be encouraged by that because the Bible says he's a God who changes not. And that may be something that's a part of your life tonight and realize maybe there has never been a way before, but it does not mean that God can't make a way. God can still do something. He did it for them and he can do it for your life as well. So you can tell in this chapter as you kind of glance down through it if you read ahead, basically there are some 40 different locations mentioned in this chapter here places where they started out from where they traveled to uh, you notice the different repetitious words that we find here three of them specifically we find the word repeated departed moved and journeyed and all throughout this chapter, there's this repetition of they moved from here to here. They departed from here and they camped over here. They journeyed from here over to here. And there's this repetition of this idea of moving, journeying, departing. All three of these words could be summarized in the one word. That's progress. That, that it was, this was their journey. This is a testimony and a record of their progression as God's people. And that is what God intends for our spiritual lives. God intends for our spiritual life to be a life of progression. The spiritual life is to be a journey. It's to be a progression. It's not just to be something that we take a stand and then we never do anything. The Christian life is intended, the Bible pictures it as a walk many times. You know, Micah tells us, he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. A walk implies progression. We see in the New Testament referenced many times, walking with the Lord. In the book of Hebrews, it says that we run our race. So again, the idea of walking, running a race, the point is the spiritual life is intended to be a journey. It's a progression from start to finish. We accept Jesus Christ. And again, what did Jesus say? He would walk by Matthew, the tax collector, and he would say, follow me. He didn't say, stand by me. He didn't say, stand for me. He said, follow me. In other words, we're going somewhere, which means I want you to leave where you're at, begin by getting up, but now it's going to be a journey. I want you to stay with me and follow me. And, and that's what the Lord wants for our lives. Our life is a journey. You have your own spiritual journey, and this is the testimony or record of their progression from place to place, and that involves at times moving from one thing 
to another thing. It involves moving from one season to a new season. It involves moving from where you're at right now spiritually to the next stage of your spiritual life in growth and maturity, not stagnating and we're certainly not backsliding and regressing backwards. It involves journeying from you know maybe where God has you now to a new location where he wants to take you. It involves moving and departing and these are all components of how God is bringing us through our own spiritual journey, keeping us fresh, keeping us dependent upon him, keeping us from just sitting still and getting stagnant where we become apathetic in a sense. And God says, no, I, I want to keep... I want to keep the wheels turning. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the Lord circumstantially is always going to have to move us to make that happen. That could be a part of it. But the reality is, is the Lord wants our spiritual life to be a progression of growth, taking steps and forward movement as he takes us through different things. And here this chapter records all of their experiences. It describes there in verse 9 how they moved and they went to that location of Mara. And remember Mara, that's from Exodus chapter 15 where there were the uh, bitter waters and as they came to Mara, remember that situation where the water there was bitter the people were thirsty but they couldn't drink the water and it was bitter and God gave that instruction there at Mara. he said to Moses do you see that tree and he said take that tree and throw it into the water and when Moses threw that specific tree a specific tree not any tree that specific tree into the waters God told him to then the waters became sweet and they were healed and became drinkable and of course it's a picture of how at times part of this journey is going to be occasions where you're going to come to some bitter waters and you're going to have bitter experiences in this life because this is a fallen world and even among God's people your time's going to come to some bitter springs and you're going to go, Man, this is bitter, this is miserable, this is horrible and what's God's solution for that? That you just drink the bitter water and get more bitter and get sour Christian stomach? And then become, you know, gossipy and disgruntled. And the Bible says that, that, that a root of bitterness can spring up and defile many. It can be a very destructive thing. What is God's solution? Same as Exodus 15. God says there is a tree that Jesus Christ died on. And if you mix that tree, the cross, into those bitter waters, then God says healing can come. And that very bitter, miserable thing, instead of being bitter and miserable, prolonged, or getting more bitterness to come about, there can be healing. And there can be a sweetness that comes out of that. How? By, by focusing on the cross, by focusing on the redemption of Jesus and bringing his redemptive love and forgiveness and saying, you know what? Hey, Jesus died for this too. And Jesus died for this person and Jesus died for me and somehow as you focus upon the cross and the cross is brought into bitter situations, it's amazing how healing and sweetness can come back into the journey. So refers to that. Look down in verse 14. There's that reference to when they moved from Alush. It says encamped in Rephidim. Again, when there was no water to drink. So again, that occasion where Exodus 17, they came and they were thirsty. And there was no water. And the Bible says like in a dry and weary land, there is no water. That, again, that picture of how then remember God smote the rock and, and the water came out and the people's thirst was satisfied. And we've talked multiple times how that rock was a picture of Christ. The Bible says that rock was Christ and how Jesus can satisfy spiritual thirst as we journey through this life. And at times it can be pretty draining. And we can find ourselves pretty thirsty 
and we feel like we're in a dry and weary place and we're like, Lord, this is so hard. This is so dry and it's so difficult. And again, what's the solution? We have to drink from the well of the water of Jesus Christ, the living water of Jesus. And sometimes that's the only thing that'll sustain you. You know, isn't it amazing how you really have no idea how bad you really need Jesus until Jesus is the only thing you got. And when he's the only thing left, all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I'm not getting anything out of this marriage. I'm not getting anything. I don't mean that personally, honey, by the way. Just double checking it. It was just an illustration. I'm not getting anything out of this job or this situation or this church or my Christian friends or my circumstances. It is just, this is the most barren, dry existence. And it seems like that you're like Elijah at the brook Cherith where there God sent him there. God literally sent him there. And then it says the brook began to dry up. He's drinking from this brook and then God starts letting the brook dry up. And Elijah, like you and I, is thinking, God, I know you told me to come here. God, I, I, you told me to come here. I, there's no question in my mind, God. Why is the brook drying up on me? God, why is the brook drying up? And see, sometimes God will allow those occasions in our life to cause our root system to go down deeper into the things of God where like roots of a tree in a drought, they go down deeper looking for that deeper water source in order to be sustained and be satisfied. And God here miraculously brought water from the rock. And again, all these things are just pictures, their journey of our spiritual journey in our lives. So it's a, a testimony. This is a record of their progression. And it's really as well a testimony and a record of God's leading and God's work, how God led them and how God worked in so many different ways in their lives. Again, we read these things and these names, these locations, they, they really mean nothing to us in the sense that, you know, we don't know where some of them are even at geographically. But for them, as they were reading through these things, no doubt it was, it was like a trip down memory lane. It was triggering things. And I said, wow, you remember that Red Sea thing? You remember that time when we thought we were going to absolutely just, you know, die of dehydration. It was just the driest, most difficult time. And God miraculously provided something to satisfy and quench our thirst and sustained us in the middle of that wilderness there when water came from that rock. And again, in our lives, I think there's something just really healthy once in a while about kind of taking a trip down memory lane spiritually. And remembering the journey. I mean, you know, maybe even tonight as you struggle to fall asleep for a little bit, just, you know, lay there for a moment and just take a little journey down memory lane from the very deliverance out of Egypt that God brought you out of and how many times he's moved you from this situation to that situation and you journeyed from this stage, which was really hard, to this new season and how at times he took you through bitter things and difficult things. Times he then brought you to seasons where there was blessing and then again seasons of difficulty and how God was faithful and he led through all those things and he helped you to make progress and to develop in the midst of all of that. So look at verse 38 with me. We won't torture you with the rest of those names and locations. It says, Aaron the priest then went up to Mount Hur at the commandment of the Lord and he had died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel. So a record of his death. Again, they're just marking the historical events here. The 40th year after they came out of Egypt on the first day of the month. And Aaron, we're reminded, was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hur. 
Look at me down in verse 49. We'll pick it up here because we kind of transition from this point. It says, they camped by the Jordan. So again, these are just recording the different departures, journeys, different locations, moving from spot to spot. But Moses now records here, they are camped now by the Jordan from Beth Shemaz as far as Abel Acacia Grove in the plains of Moab. So they're on the eastern plains of Moab on the Jordan. They're directly across from Jericho in the area of the plains of Moab. And it's at that point, verse 50, very important instructions come to them as well. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho saying, here's the instruction now, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Now hit the pause button, stop there, verse 51, and take note of that word, verse 51, when. Please take notice that the Spirit of God did not prompt Moses to say, if you cross the Jordan... If you eventually get into the Jordan, as if somehow God was saying, from what I've seen so far, and from what your journey's been, I don't know if this is going to come to pass in your life. But notice, I want you to see there, in God's mind, he's confident of what's going to take place in his people's lives. God says, when you cross into the Jordan. I want you to take notice of that. The Bible says in Philippians, he who begins a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And you know what? Listen, you know, here's what's even interesting and is sort of backtracking, but it connects to what I'm saying right now even. When you read chapter 33, you really can take notice as you read through that log that God really doesn't make mention of any of their failures. How many times do we read of all the mistakes? They remember all the grumbling and the complaining and the rebellion against authority and I mean the, all the different issues that happened. The golden calf thing, not mentioned. That was a pretty big one. The time where they complained and God sent the serpents to bite the people. Uh, you know, the occasion when the plague came and killed 24,000 men because of all the sexual immorality and idolatry with the people of, of Midian. None of that's mentioned. The locations, God says, I know where you were, but God doesn't mention what they did in all their failures and stumblings and shortcomings. Why? Because God's a forgiving God. And unlike you and I, who we wrote the record, we put the record of the wrongs in there because we're good at that. We keep good records. It's amazing. And you know, the greatest testimony of that is all you got to do is be married and you'll see how good you are keeping records of wrongs. <laughs> what about the time that... in? 1972 when you 1972 I mean it's amazing how we keep records somebody does something mean to us hurtful to us they make a mistake boy and just it is just documented it is filed perfectly alphabetically and we can pull that file so fast of exactly what they did wrong we're just very good at keeping records of wrongdoings the wonderful thing is, is aren't you glad God's not like that and God knows everything. Again, keep in mind, when the Bible says that God forgets our sin, doesn't remember our sin, it's not that God has amnesia. See, God's an all-knowing God. He's an omniscient God, which means that you know, God can't just you know, choose to have him. God chooses not to remember, the idea is. 
God knows everything. God can't learn anything. But God chooses not to remember. The idea is that God says, you know what? I'm going to expunge that from the record. I'm just going to take it right off the record. Somehow, like the Watergate tapes, I'm going to somehow accidentally, all the tapes are going to be blank. Nobody will see them. I'm just going to just wash them away. Get rid of them like the emails, you know. Whatever. I had to get that in there. I won't mention any names. I want the Bible study to be relevant. This is 2015. It's amazing how that can happen, and God does that. So he makes this record here. I better move on before I get in trouble. And, and he doesn't include any of what they've done, and he doesn't even have a sense of negative or pessimistic attitude by saying, if you cross the Jordan, he says here to verse 51, when? God says, I know my plans and purpose for you, and I believe that it's going to come to pass in your life. I believe you're going to enter into the promised land and experience what I intend for you. And he gives them instruction now, verse 52 of chapter 33, about when they cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. He says, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Notice all the D words here, drive out the inhabitants, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images. Again, many of these were quite honestly sexually perverse, somewhat pornographic in an ancient way. And demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given the land to you to possess. So God gives them instruction now when they enter into the land, and we've talked about this before, Keep in mind, this wasn't just God looking on the map and just picking a place. This is the place. And again, so therefore, though these people have been a really great group of people, you know, I'm just going to send them an eviction notice, kick them out of their land because I want my people to have it. And I love this group more than this group. That's not the case here. This land that God is giving to Israel is because God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And every human being is a tenant on this planet of God's land. And these people, the Canaanite people, had become incredibly, incredibly grotesque and vile and degraded in sexual perversity, in homosexuality, in bestiality. They were committing child sacrifice. They were ripping open the wombs of pregnant women and their idolatrous worship practices and then sacrificing the very children they would take out of the wombs of pregnant women as a way of sort of appeasing the gods that they worshipped. I mean, the practices of these Canaanite people were so vile. They were so corrupt I, I mean, barbaric. I mean, if again, if I try and put a modern image in your mind, I mean, they were doing things like, like the people of ISIS are doing today. Just barbaric, ferocious, filthy things. I mean, and things as well, let me be very candid, like we're doing in our own country today. And they had been doing these things for 400 years. Genesis 15, God says, for 400 years it took for the iniquity of these people groups to reach its full before ultimately God had no other recourse. They were so degraded, they were deteriorating from then other than to judge them. And, and again, we give people the privilege today, if you're a landlord, the laws of the land give you the privilege. If somebody is acting and behaving in a way that is inappropriate, you have the right to do what? Send them an eviction notice and say, I'm sorry, you, you're out of the land. So this is what God is doing here. God's serving them their eviction notice. The way that he is doing it with these people after 400 years of patience is he's using the Israelites as his instrument militarily that they will go in 
and now move the people out of the land. But notice God's instruction to the people as he now gives this land, ultimately called Israel, to the Jewish people. He says, I'm giving you the land to possess. God has a right to do that because it's his land, verse 53. But notice, as I said, from verse 52 to 53, God tells them, drive out the inhabitants, destroy the engraved stones, destroy the molded images, demolish their high places as you dispossess the land. What God is saying is, look, you need to eradicate from those people, not just the people themselves, but all of the practices and all of the things that they possess and they're participating in, you need to eradicate those things and not let any of them remain and clean them out very strongly. And God says, because if you don't think those things will allure you, and if you leave them in place and you adopt their practices and let their you know, and leave the opportunities there, God wants his people to realize, look, you'll fall prey to those things. So God calls here for a very strong cleansing and eradication of those things again. And there are times, again, in our spiritual lives where when God takes us into something, God says, look, the relationship with these things, you cannot have it. Because if you retain a relationship with these things or you leave yourself opportunity to have access to these things, they will destroy you. And we are kidding ourselves if we try and tell ourselves, well, I wouldn't be attracted to that. I mean, that's gross, those molded images. I mean, those sick pornographic statues they have. I, mean, I would never be allured to that or attracted to that. God says, ultimately you will. Because we're people of flesh and we have a sin nature. And in the same way, ultimately, those people fell prey to those things and it just became accustomed to it. Gradually, that's what would happen to God's people. And we're no different. And so God says, look, there's a time where you got to remove any opportunity you got to eradicate any access to those things. You need to drive those things out, destroy them, get rid of them, clean them out, remove those things. And verse 54, he says, You shall divide the land as a lot, as an inheritance among your families. To the larger tribes, you shall give a large inheritance. To the smaller, you shall give a smaller inheritance. That everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot and you shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. Now, we'll see more of this in the chapters ahead. Basically, God just makes mention here how they were to distribute the land proportionately. The large tribes with large populations, they necessitated a larger piece of real estate. The smaller tribes, they didn't need more than was necessary, so God proportionately said that each tribe was to receive their own inheritance. Again, interesting to take note and to remember either way that God is giving this land to Israel and God gives this land to them important to remember honestly before even Arabs or Muslims existed again at this time historically there is no existence of Muslim people there's no existence of, of what we would refer to today as Muslims and Arabs and, and people well, well that land belongs to listen at that point there were, there were Jews and God gave that land from a very ancient time to the Jews it's very clear. Those other people groups, well, they have a right to the land. They weren't even ex in existence yet when God gave the right to the land to the Jews, those other people groups that say they have rights. And again, people, you know, dialogue in the processes of Mideast conflict today and, and groups that didn't even exist at that time when God initially gave the inheritance to the people of the Jews. Verse 55, God issues a warning now. He says, but... 
Back to his point from verse 52 and 53. But if you notice, do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain, again, if you drive out some, but you let certain people, you let certain things remain, they shall be irritants in your eyes, thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. And moreover, God says, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So what is that? That's a warning from God. God says, look, don't think that just because you're my people that you get a special perk, that you get exceptions. God says, because in the same way right is right and wrong is wrong and they're being removed because what they did was wrong, God says, if you think you get a special exception clause because I'm a follower of God, so I can do what's right and wrong differently because I'm a follower of God, so I get special privileges. God says, don't be deceived. He says, because I'll do to you as I did to them, which is what? God said, I'll remove you from the land. You'll lose the opportunity. You'll forfeit the chance to experience what I wanted you to experience, my blessing, my best, the highest ideal for their lives. And of course, ultimately, is that not exactly what God held his word to with them historically? Where ultimately... The Assyrians from the north, the Babylonians to the south, Judah. What happens ultimately, Israel gets moved out of the land. They get put out of the land for a time because they disregarded God's word and God kept his word and his warning. But God's strong exhortation there in the 55th verse is God says, look, if you don't deal with these things strongly and you let these things remain, God says they'll become a snare to you. In other words, God is saying, if you don't destroy those things, those things will destroy you. And of course, all of this is a picture, again, of the spiritual life and the walk in the spirit as compared to the things of the flesh, the enemies of our soul. And what God is reminding us of in regards to our own spiritual life is if we don't strongly deal with the flesh and the things that tempt our flesh and create access points for our flesh to indulge sinful behavior and opportunities to take paths and courses to do sinful things, if we do not severely, when God puts his finger on something and says, look, this thing that has way too high of a place in your life that is going to lead you to do things you shouldn't do, I want you to remove it. And if we choose to wink at that or not obey God's spirit and not be responsive to the Holy Spirit. And that's how God does this. And, and one at a time, you know, little by little. Isn't that how God works by his spirit? He says, look, th this, it, it, this doesn't please me. It needs to go from your life. And one by one, he gradually, as we walk in the spirit, reveals things to us that maybe aren't pleasing to him. And he says, look, this is no good. It needs to leave your life. And he says, I, you can't let this remain because it will destroy you. This relationship, you know, this participation in this, this thing, this what you're doing in your home. And sometimes God says, look, this can't remain anymore. It has to go. And God says, if you don't deal with it, this area of the flesh, maybe this area of sin, God says, and you don't destroy it and remove it, then God says, it will come back around and it will destroy you. And that's always what happens. That's what happened with the Israelites. They didn't drive people out. We read later on historically. And those people caused problem after problem after problem as they fell into idolatrous practices. Notice God says these things will become irritants in your eyes. Again, you ever have something in your eye and irritation in your eye? What does it do? It messes your focus up. And God says, look, if you don't remove this, if you let it remain, for whatever reason you want to let it remain, 
and you justify, well, I can hold on to this. And you know the Holy Spirit's saying, you need to get rid of this. And you try and justify it, God says, it will mess your focus up. And it'll be a thorn in your side, which it'll constantly be causing pain and problems for you, God says. And it will be, God says, something that harasses you. In other words, it will always keep dogging you and bothering you, and it will be a constant source of conflict in your soul. It will constantly harass you internally until you deal with it obediently the way God wants to. So very fitting picture and certainly great application for our lives. Now, chapter 34 basically deals with sort of the boundaries geographically of the promised land. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel, say to them, when you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. So again, God's going to give now the defined borders of the land. Again, many of these areas mean very little to us, but they give us the defined borders for the Jews as God gave them the land. Their southern border was to be from the wilderness of Zin along the border of Edom, and your southern border shall extend eastward down to the end of the Salt Sea, that's the Dead Sea. Your border shall then turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim and continue to Zin and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea, and it shall go to Hazar, Adar, and continue to Asmon, and the border shall turn there from Asmon to the brook of Egypt and end at the sea, probably a reference there to the Red Sea. So that's their southern border, almost all the way down to the uh, Red Sea, to the border of, of Egypt, um, which really even is beyond uh, where the border of Israel is currently today, where they occupy. It's even further south than that that God initially offered and gave to them. As for the western border, pretty simple. Uh, the western border was to be the great sea for a border. That shall be your western border. That's a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, so the Mediterranean Sea was their western border. Their northern border, if you read through those territories from the Great Sea, marking all the way up to Mount Hur, uh, down through verse 9, you'll see those territories actually include even what today is some parts of modern Lebanon and Syria, all the way north of even beyond a little bit where the current Israeli northern border is. And verse 10, they shall mark out the eastern border, and, and that eastern border was to go down, basically, look, verse 12, it says, shall go down along the Jordan and shall end at the Salt Sea, again, a reference to the Dead Sea, and that was the land with its surrounding boundaries. So basically, the land border is defined there, and if you look at it geographically, basically, it's about 180 miles from north to south and about 40 miles wide. So not a huge piece of real estate, but nonetheless, this was the land that God gave to the Jews. And what is really somewhat sad is as we read through the chronology of the history of Israel and as they go in a conquest of the land and they occupy the territories and even under David and Solomon at the zenith of the height of the kingdom of Israel, they still at that point only occupied a portion of of all the land that God is giving to them here. So in one sense, there's a very sad testimony that Israel, the Jews, let me put it this way, the Jews never took possession of everything that God had promised and wanted them to possess. They stopped short of everything God intended for them. And again, it is a picture, as we said before, the promised land is a picture of the promised spiritual life and how at times as Christians, 
God has promised us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And many times as Christians, we never fully possess all of the spiritual possessions and promises of God that he intends for us in a life in Christ. And we stop short because of lack of faith or disobedience or, or just an unwillingness to be open to the things of the Spirit because we're intimidated, something weird may happen, or, or just our own spiritual apathy, or we, we kind of just become complacent, or we get lethargic and sleepy spiritually. We kind of well, this is kind of good enough, and you know, we kind of just settle for less. And we just say, okay, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've gone this far, and this is pretty far, but yet there's this, still, this one life-dominating sin in your life. And somehow you just determine, yeah, I mean... I just, but maybe, maybe that particular people group, they're just supposed to occupy that territory in my heart. And God says, no, they're not. I've given you all the land. I've promised it to you. And listen, the Bible says in Romans 6, sin shall not have dominion over you. The Bible tells us there's victory in Christ. Look, I'm not trying to say there'll ever be the perfection of a sinless life. But I can tell you that through Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, the book of Romans and Galatians emphasize that we as Christians should not have to live in life-dominating sin, where some sin dominates and rules over our life. That is not God's will. God's will is that we enter in and that we experience through his power victory and we take the promises of God and we appropriate them by faith and obedience and we let him give to us all the victory and all the territory in the spiritual life that he wants, that we would serve God to the fullest extent, that we would go into territories spiritually and occupy and conquer things and take mountains and valleys as Jesus gives us the power by his spirit to do that and that we would experience all that God intends for us. Listen, I want to challenge you tonight. Don't rob yourself by stopping short of everything God has for you in the Christian life. There is more. There is more, and it's sad when we forfeit those things. We can all be guilty of it. And let us be encouraged to have the spirit of Joshua and Caleb and to go in and to take the promises of God and to experience them to the fullest extent. Verse 13, Moses then commanded the children of Israel, saying, This is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord's commanded to give to the half tribes, uh, nine and a half tribes, excuse me, and then he reiterates for the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, the tribe of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance with the half tribe of Manasseh, and the two and a half tribes have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, across from the Jericho eastward toward the sunrise. So again, we talked about that last week in chapter 32. In verse 16, down through the remainder of the chapter here, again, we see another list. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. And you shall take one leader, notice verse 18, from every tribe to divide up the land for the inheritance. And these are the names of the men from the tribes, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Simeon is Shemuel, from the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad, and I'm not going to try and mispronounce the rest of those names. You wouldn't know if I was doing it correctly or not, probably anyway, but... Verse 29 says, these are the ones, 
one leader from each of the 12 tribes that the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. So notice here, they're going to go in and take the land and God says, once you take the land, then you're going to have to apportion the different territories. Remember we read earlier on where God said, Smaller tribes would get smaller portions of the land, larger tribes, larger portions. But there were not only tribes, but then there were family clans within the tribes. And this was going to be a real process. Do you have to delegate out different territories? Ultimately, in the next chapter, there also were 48 cities to be appointed among the Levites that were to be appointed, as well as six cities of refuge. But there was a process where they needed to then distribute the different territories and apportion out the different areas of land to divide it up. And again, God would give divine direction he did regarding the borders, but it seems there's a little bit of liberality that God leaves now for there to be human discernment in how the land is actually then distributed. God gives some general principles. These are the overall borders, northern, southern, eastern, western. These are the borders. God said the big tribes, they need a lot of land. The smaller tribes, they don't need as much land. Do it proportionately. But then God says, now I want you to tap on the shoulder together with Joshua and Eliezer, 12 men who I'm going to identify by my spirit that I've commanded and called for this purpose to then use their discernment and the wisdom of God to then exercise this and to implement the leading of God. And there seems that there's here some freedom where God allows them to use their own discernment in making decision. And there's this sort of cooperative experience between God and man. And I think this is such a beautiful thing because oftentimes God will work in this way. God will give us some general guidance at times. He gives us boundaries and principles. But then there's this wonderful thing that God has created in our life where he says, you know, here's the general framework. Again, sometimes I think we have this perspective as Christians that the spiritual life is God like micromanaging every single thing of our life. God, what should I make for dinner? Chicken? Hamburgers? I better fast and pray about this. And then your husband comes home and thinks he's fasting because it's still not done yet. No. God's given us discernment. God's given us wisdom. And God gives us some freedom to exercise our own judgment. I, look, I have children. I love my children. I don't want my children as a father, and I'm an evil human father, to sit on the couch terrified and fearful and not do anything their whole life what are you doing? Dad, I'm afraid to do anything because I might do something wrong. I don't want them to do that. They understand the general guidelines of my parental direction and boundaries, but I want them to have freedom to enjoy life and make some decisions. And see, sometimes a part of the will of God is being able to have the freedom. to. Again, God said, look, these are the right men. They're anointed by the Spirit. I've commanded these men. Moses taps on the shoulder of these 12 different men. God wants you to serve this purpose to make these decisions. And you know, what a beautiful thing, this cooperative experience of walking with God, His leading, but yet at the same time allowing us to have freedom to be able to exercise the wisdom and use the brain and intellect that He's given to us. Well, let's stop there this evening. Let's stand. Let's pray together. And we'll spend some time worshiping the Lord as we reflect upon him tonight. Father, we thank you for your word, for this uh, chapters of the book of Numbers as we round up this study, Lord, the truths, the insights that are here for us. 
Lord, we pray your spirit will continue to water the seeds uh, that we have sown into our souls tonight. And that even as we worship now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will continue uh, to just move in our midst. Lord, minister among us, minister to us, minister through us. And help us now to turn our hearts in worship to you as we sit and just enjoy your presence with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.